Thank you for listening to this land acknowledgement. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton, where I record this podcast, is situated upon the traditional territories of the Erie, Neutral, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nations. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which was an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe to share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. It extends between Montreal and Fort Erie. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. It is home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island. This land acknowledgement is a small gesture to recognize the rich history of this land and so that I can better understand my role as a settler, as well as a neighbor, partner, and caretaker. I stand in solidarity with the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, transgender, and two-spirited people, and all those who fight for justice on their behalf. Miigwech. Thank you. Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. Speaking with Gail Vaz Oxlade was a treat. For the benefit of those in other countries who may not be familiar, Gail became a household name in Canada. She's an expert in personal finance and was a larger-than-life persona through her many TV shows and books. As is often the case, there's a story behind that persona. I should warn you, there is some salty language at times in this episode, so if there are young children about, you may wish to use headphones. Thank you for listening. This is episode 32. So you're in the middle of a big move. I am very excited. I'm doing this for me, but I'm doing this mostly for my children because my daughter was living in Toronto and turning herself inside out. Mm. And my son is autistic and has Mm. had a hard time finding work despite multiple qualifications. And my daughter said that really what she wanted to do was hobby farm. So we bought 35 acres with a nice four-bedroom house on it. And most of it is forested. So it's not like we have to plow 35 acres. It's mostly forested. I have goats and I'm getting two major horses. Oh my God. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Especially the goats part. You could be yes. yet another person posting pictures of goats in pajamas Ooh, bouncing. All over the place. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm going to become that person. And we found this geodesic dome that's been qualified for Yukon growing. So we know it'll be good enough for us. I don't think it'll come as any surprise that your daughter wants to be in charge. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that she has this absolutely lovely mate who is soft and gentle and kind. And I said to her just yesterday, I said, you are nicer to Julian than you are to any of the rest of us. And she stopped for a moment and she thought, and she said, yes, I am. He's the only neurotypical one. So we have to be nice to him because all the rest of us are crazy. So Malcolm has his autism. I have severe depression. Alex has anxiety and depression. My stepdaughter, Amanda, who's also going to be living with us, has a wicked cage of ADHD tacked on to bipolar disorder. So (laughs) So we run the gambit, okay? (laughs) Fantastic. So we're moving to a small place called St. Eugene. 
Saint Eugene is the patron saint of broken families. Oh, really? <laughs> perfect. Just perfect. <laughs> That's great. So I have a little intro for you. Feel free to correct me because Lord knows I know you will. Gail Vaz Oxlade. You are a sister, a daughter, and mother, mm-hmm. and a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> You're an author of 19 books. Mm-hmm. You've been a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail and Chatelaine magazine, among others. You're a Gemini award-winning host of Till Debt Do Us Part. Mm-hmm princess and money moron. You co-authored uh, a book with Victoria Rice called The CEO of Everything, yes. which is about being suddenly single, either through death, separation, divorce. Yes. You've been a consumer advocate for decades as it relates to debt and credit card debt in particular. And banking. One of the Gale rules is your bank is not your friend. And then in 2020, you also created the Money Masterclass, where you shared your knowledge through a series of tweets. Welcome to the arena, Gail. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm very so... happy to be here. I was very proud of the 2020 Money Masterclass. What happened was I retired from money when I was about 55. I said, that's it. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I've said it. I've said it. I've said it. And then what happened is I was watching the bankruptcy numbers climbing. And they were climbing very dramatically. And I said out loud on Twitter, you guys have to get your stuff together because this is going to be what breaks you. And that anybody want to do a money masterclass? And I fully expected everybody to drop off by about May. They stuck it out right through to the end of December. I was very pleased at the response. And what kind of followers did you have? Oh, I, at one point, I was getting something like 7 uh, million impressions a day on Twitter. Holy cow. Yes, it was. So what happened was, I have been a big proponent of an emergency fund for a really long time, and it's a tough sell. And then COVID, and suddenly everybody saw the wisdom of my ways. Each time I have done this, whether it's been on television or it's been through my books, I try to do it in a different way because you're trying to reach as many people and how they receive information as possible. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to the Money Masterclass, I actually did it backwards from Debt Free Forever because Debt Free Forever is the basis of everything. It's a great book. It's got everything in it. Instead of making people do their spending analysis and make their budget at the beginning, I waited until something like August or September to do that. And I just put them through steps every single day. They have to do something. So something might have been not shopping. Something might have been um, going around their house and picking up something that they haven't used in the last six months and putting it in a box because they're going to give it away. The idea being if you weren't prepared to pack it to move it, then you should get rid of it because it's not actually serving you. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of life lessons in this that don't necessarily directly relate to money. But if you don't have the life lesson, the money doesn't make sense. And so I was giving people those life lessons as I went along. So by the time we got to the spending analysis and the budget, everybody was already way on board. Hmm. Classically, one thinks you know someone through their television persona. Actually do know me because as I appear on television is how I actually am. So it came as quite a shock to the network executives. I would walk into their office and be as salty and as rude as I am on television because they thought I was acting. So much so that when I called a halt to to debt, I said, I'm done doing the show. I'm bored out of my mind. 
And um, they decided they were going to refloat the show with a new host. And they tried twice and twice it didn't work Mm. because they wanted those people to act like me. Right. Okay. But I hadn't been acting. I had just been me. And there's only one Gail. A very good thing for the world. Yes. So take me back to dinner conversation in your household when you were growing up. Um, so the dinner table was not a nice place in my household when I was growing up. So much so that we do not sit to dinner in my house. We sit in front of the television around a coffee table and that's how we eat. Even if we're having a massive meal like fish tacos, you know, that requires a huge assembly line. We do it around the coffee table because I was made to sit at the dining room table until my plate was clean. And mm. if I didn't finish the food on my plate, then it got served back to me for breakfast. And so dinner was not a place where I wanted to hang out. And so I eliminated that. My son has always sat at a dining room table to eat because he is methodical. My daughter has done a lot of what I have done because she ran into much the same problems with her dad as I ran into with my mom in terms of the dinner table being turned into a place for conflict. Mm. And so we just abandoned it. Happily, we are going to reinstate the dinner table because we now have five people that will be living together who like each other. And mm. because four of the five of us are wingnut crazy, we allow a lot of space in our relationship for the self-care that we need. So if one or the other of us says, I need a nap now, nobody argues with that. You go nap. Is that what you need? That's what you need. I need to eat. You go eat. Nobody's making anybody stick to anybody else's schedule. And so have high hopes for the dinner conversations of the future. And what event in your life had the most profound impact on you? There are a few things. I think being an immigrant had an enormous impact on me. Losing all my roots and having to reestablish myself, that was hard. Equally hard was uh, my mother broke up with me when my son was just about one year old. He's 25 now. Um, took my dad, took most of the family over something ridiculous. So I spent a lot of time grieving that. I grieved it for oh, a good two or three years I spent crying. And then I healed. If I have a particular strength, I'm resilient. I'm mm. really resilient. I don't necessarily do it quickly. <laughs> Sometimes it takes me a while, but I am resilient, which is why I have succeeded despite three divorces and multiple changes of venue. And it doesn't matter. And I'm very optimistic about the future. I love the future. I think the future is the really boss place to be. And how did you overcome what you went through? It was a lot of crying. Mm. It was a lot of frustration. Everything has been scary for me. Uh, my mother used to say of me as a baby that when she held me in her arms, I trembled. And she was always trying to supposedly not scare me because I had this innate fear that seemed to be super, super high. But I read a book when I was in my early 20s called Feel the Fair and Do It Anyway. Mm -hmm. Changed my life. That book at Albert Camus, The Outsider, 
changed my life, mostly because I got to recognize I wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. So when I discovered I was an existentialist, it was like, okay, now I know what this is. <laughs> I'm not just weird. I'm an existentialist. <laughs> I have a fancy name for That's it. That's right, for my weirdness. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, through my life, what I have done is I've constantly faced the fear. The fear has, I've never allowed the fear to get in the way mm. because the fear would stop me dead. My fear is so strong that before I would go out on book tours, my body would break in some way. So I would show up at a book signing limping. And my media person would say, oh, my God, you're just about to get on a plane and fly across the country. What are you going to do? And I would say, don't worry about it. As soon as I walk out of this place, it'll be fine. This is just my body saying to me, you don't really want to do this. Okay. And I have to say, yes, I do. So recognizing that the crazy that lives inside my head is a part of me, but also distinct from me, helped me learn to deal with her in a way that I don't have to beat her up. I can just say to her, sweetheart, fuck off. We're not doing this today. You know, for the first 60 times that I appeared in media, I puked first. I was on Barbara Frum's very last broadcasts with David Chilton, who talks at 3,000 miles an hour. Okay, so Barbara Frum asked a question and Chilton was there with the answer. And Barbara Frum asked another question and Chilton was there with the answer. I had barely processed the question and the man was already halfway through his answer. So much so that I thought to myself, as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is terrible. I'm never going to get to say anything. So halfway through her next question, I started to answer before she'd finished the question because I had to give him an <laughs> And she just looked over at me and smiled and finished her question, but looking directly at me. And so I got to answer. And then she threw to each of us after that. Everything I've ever done has been that kind of battle. You're a woman financial expert and wasn't the norm. No, no, it's true. At one point, at the height of my writing, I was writing 27 columns a month. Oh, my gosh. Um, I was writing for The Globe fairly consistently. Mm-hmm. And I got a gig doing a TV show on TVO. And my editor at The Globe and Mail called me up and said, you have all these things on your plate. What are you going to give up to do the TV show? And I said, give up anything. I'm not giving up anything. Stephen, I said, I write your column when I'm having my morning crap. So, <laughs> yeah. so somebody who's terrified and so nervous to to go out and, and do these things, by all means, write 19 books. <laughs> you could be on a book tour all the time. <laughs> well, sometimes it felt like that. Some of my book, book tours were really long. Mm. And I mm-hmm. would get home and I would just like, because the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is I'm actually an introvert. Yeah, I can believe that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I would go off and do a speech and be big and excited and exuberant and everybody would want to hug. And, but um, I would do all of that and then I would come home and I would die for 48 hours. I wouldn't move. I would barely eat. I would just stay in my bed for 48 hours just to get my energy back to a normal level. Because mm. I'd burnt myself out. You said you, you suffered from de- depression. Was that sort of brought on somewhat by the mania that was required? Interestingly not. No? Interestingly I used adrenaline as my drug of choice. Mm -hmm. So 
Anytime my brain got a whiff of my depression rearing its ugly head, all it did was make me take another job. And so this is how I came to stack so many things on top of each other. I mean, at my height, I was blogging every day. I was doing a radio show once a week. I was shooting television. It in itself was a full-time job and writing a book a year and speaking. So there were a lot of things going on, but I chose not to use alcohol because my father's an alcoholic. So going down that road just seemed like stupidity to me. And instead, what I did was I used adrenaline. I just kept putting myself into situations where I had to gear up. Let's take a moment for our sponsor. Are you ready to write the next chapter? Are you ready to be the hero in your own story? I work one-on-one with people to help them discover what they most want from the next phase of their life. Isn't it time to create a life worth leading? Go to the podcast website and click on the link. I look forward to hearing from you. What does living a courageous life mean to you? Well, feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Mm. It's that whole idea that it doesn't really matter if it works out today or tomorrow or the next day. What's important is that you know what you want and you be focused enough on it that you will do what it takes to get it. And my optimism as well. I think optimism plays really well into being courageous. I think if you are a pessimist to your soul, it's hard to be courageous because you can't talk yourself up. Being courageous just means it doesn't matter that you're afraid. Mm. Being afraid is part of life. Everybody's afraid of something. I'm not afraid of spiders and snakes, but I'm afraid of just about every step I ever took career-wise. I mean, I have no education. I have a high school education. That's as far as I got. And I made the rest myself. I'm an autodidact. I'm self-taught. I love to teach myself. You were asked to write a financial manual of some sort? What was the first? So what happened was I was working for a management consulting company. Right. And I was their word processing operator. Mm -hmm. And uh, by dint of having that job, I learned everything that they were teaching because I had to type it all. Right. So it just went in my fingers and into my brain. When it came time to make more money, the only way I could make more money was to go into sales and to write programs myself. Mm -hmm. So I went into sales and puked every day for a year. For a year, every day I got up, I would have a shower, I would puke my brains out, I'd have a cup of tea, and I'd go to work. Okay, Because the idea of getting on the phone and doing a cold call was anathema to me. Mm -hmm. But I did it. I did it anyway. Okay? And the first year that I worked doing this, um, I sold a program into one of the trust companies. They were bringing in a whole new staff, um, all highly educated, but not necessarily knowing anything about product. And Mm -hmm. so they needed a product knowledge training program. And I wrote the RRSP training program for this group. And they had a control group and they had the group that I had trained and the group that I had trained in significantly better than the control group. And so they decided to do it for every single product that they sold. And in essence, what they did was they shipped me their procedure manuals, their marketing material, and gave me full access to anybody I needed to speak to to answer any question I had. And then I just sat down and wrote the training. 
And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I did it for every single product that that financial institution sold, which is how I got my education in money. Okay, again, secondary education, because I was busy doing something else. And what it meant was that I had a more holistic approach to money than just about anybody out there. Because if you look at somebody like Gordon Pape, he was selling mutual funds. Right. Okay. But I had to write the credit manuals, as well as the investment manuals, as well as the deposit manuals, as well as blah, 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 blah. So I saw how everything fit together. Mm. And so that was, that became what I branded myself with. I was not going to come up with fabulous strategies that would make you a millionaire by the time you were 35. Mm -hmm. I was going to teach you how to manage your money in the most holistic way possible. What goals do you still want to achieve? Well, I'm writing my memoirs. However, no publisher in Canada will publish my memoirs if I don't write them a money book first. So are you kidding me right now? No, explicitly said. So I will self-publish. So my next goal is to finish. I've done the first draft is to finish the book, get it edited and get it self-published. And then the next book will be the one about moving to the farm. People love that shit. <laughs> they do. You no, know, a year in Provence, you name it. People love it when you know, I, I built a house in Tuscany. Come on my journey with me. I'll show you the warm rot. Oh, people love that stuff. They love going on journeys with people. What's essential to living a courageous life? It's mm, a good question. Maybe self-worth. Maybe mm. a sense of your own place where you fit in the universe. I've always had a sense that I am where I'm supposed to be. Mm. So even when, you know, my first husband was very abusive, physically abusive. Mm. And I would not change having lived through that because living through that made me the next version of Gail, which was better. It gave me more empathy. I had grown up with a mother who said things like, well, if any man ever laid a hand on me, I would just pick up the lamp and crack it over his head at night when he's asleep. Of course, she never did that. And I had a family member who was regularly physically abused by her husband. And my entire family just turned a blind eye to it. Nobody did anything. This whole idea that you have to live to somebody else's rule. I've never done that. I live by my rules. And sometimes that means I break other people's rules. But if this is going to work for me, this is what I have to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think if you keep learning, so that's a regular mantra in our house. Okay. Something happens and shit goes sideways. And the next question is, okay, what's the lesson? Yeah. What do I have to do to stop banging my head against this wall? How do I do things differently so that this is not going to be my next outcome again? Okay. And so it's always a matter of figuring out what works for you and how it works for you. I say I break other people's rules, but there are, we also have this rule in our family where you don't hurt anybody else on purpose. Mm -hmm. You don't do any harm to yourself and you don't willfully break anything. Those are the rules my children grew up with. 
Okay. It wasn't finish your dinner. It wasn't make sure your socks match because none of those things have happened. It was just be kind to other people, be kind to yourself and don't let your temper get the better of you Mm. because you will get angry. You know, my daughter gets into a fury and she throws her phone at the wall and it shatters into a million pieces. And I just look at her and I go, you know, you're buying the next phone because I'm not replacing it. Right. And so that's it. Always about consequences, but natural consequences, not made up consequences, not you were rude to your grandmother. And so I'm going to make sure that you are never rude to your grandmother again by making you clean the toilet with your toothbrush. None of that kind of rubbish, really natural consequence that brought the lesson home immediately. Mm -hmm. Living with an autistic child helped with that. And I'll tell you why. Not everything makes sense to an autistic child Mm -hmm. if it's not explicitly spelled out. And so I could never punish Malcolm for doing something wrong. The first time he did anything wrong, he got an explanation. He never did it twice. All he needed was the explanation. But if I said to him, you can't do that thing, he would, well, I didn't know that. And I said, I know you didn't know that. That's why I'm telling you, no, you can't do that thing. And this is the reason why you can't do that thing. So for instance, I swear like a Trojan. Um, I, I hadn't said, noticed. Oh, no, not at all. Malcolm <laughs> <laughs> came home from school and he's running around the yard and he's bouncing his ball and he's going, fuck, fuck. and my, somebody says, you know, you're going to let him do that. And I said, Absolutely. And I took him aside and I said to him, so here's the thing. If you use that word at school, I can't do anything for you. That's a forbidden word at school. So if they suspend you, you're on your own, can't help you. But you can use that word as much as you want here at home where you're safe. Okay. And so that's what he chose to do. Time and place for everything. The word itself doesn't mean Jack. It's all about context. What impact do you want to have on the world? Well, My stepson used to say I was a refugee from a Disney movie. Okay. Because my mantra has been, my job here is to be as happy as I can be and to make as many other people around me as happy as I can make them. Not my job to fix them, just my job to bring happiness to wherever I am. And that's what I do. So I guess that's the impact I want to have. I want to see people smile and believe in themselves and know that what they want, they can have, but they have to be clear on what it is they want. They can't have it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. They have to pick and choose because serially you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you do on your last day? Exactly what I'm doing the day before. I don't need to live my life any differently than I'm living my life. Because I'm going to be with the people I love. We're going to have all the conversations we always have. I'm going to eat the food I love to eat. I I don't save anything. I have no good things. Okay. Um, Everything is used all the time. If there's a crack in something and it doesn't bother me, it stays. If there's a crack in something and it bothers me, it goes. I'm quite happy with how I live my life. So the last day can be just like all the others. And if you had the opportunity to have a conversation with someone, living or dead? Yeah, these are good questions. Who would it be and what would the nature of the conversation be? So I used to say that I'd love to sit at a table with Steven Pinker, Howard Gardner, Mm -hmm. who is the author of Multiple Intelligences. And the guys 
who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, mostly because I want them to talk to each other and I just want to listen. <laughs> I want to see what buzz they come up with. Right? That being self-taught thing again. Yes. Listening in. When my mother said to me after my second divorce, my mother, I said to her, you know, I'm going to get married again. And she said, there's no doubt in my mind you will. She said, do you know what you want from your next husband? And I said, yes, I do. I want someone who's smarter than me or smart enough to know he's not. <laughs> and Fantastic. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Maybe it's that the next time anyone thinks to themselves, this is too much. If you just know that where you are today is not where you're going to be tomorrow, just wait. And it goes the other way as well. If you're having a fabulous life right now, caca is around the corner because that's the way a cycle works. Okay. There is no staticness in life. It's always moving. And so if you're on the upside where things are going great, Take every moment as it comes to you and appreciate it, but know that there is a downside coming. And so you have to be prepared for that. And mm -hmm. if you're on the downside going, know that this too will end. And there is an upside around the corner. I don't know how long it's going to take you to get to it, but you will get to it. And so know that you are in charge of how you respond to things. You can't affect how people respond to you. You can only affect how you respond to things. And so it is up to you whether you decide you are going to take it on and make it your woe or you're just going to dust your shoulder off and say, that's okay. You go your way, mm -hmm. I'm fine. I would like to ask you, because I know you had a blow up. I know that your life sort of imploded. sounds like it felt bigger than that to me. It felt like fireworks to me. How much happier are you now than before the blow up? I don't know if it's happiness, but I feel like I am myself. Fabulous. How much of that was hidden before? Oh, a fair amount, I think, anyway. I don't know how much people perceive it from the outside, but I feel very different. Between my ears, mm -hmm. I feel very different, and in my heart, I feel very different. I don't feel like that sense of dread and that sense of I'm living a lie, I'm living a lie. What would you tell your younger self, the young woman who was heading out into the world and before she got married? You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. You're not going to believe the fabulous life you end up having. You won't even believe it. And you should see the shoes you get to wear. <laughs> it's all worth it for the shoes. The shoes, the TV shoes. Oh, TV shoes were great. I would spend 15 minutes in my TV shoes. I would do walk up and then the shoes would come off and I'd spend the rest of the day barefooted because I'm tall. And so right. if I was in shoes, all the boys had to be on apple boxes to shoot. So I, my favorite place is barefoot. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I don't think I was really ever able to do shoes. I was born with Fred Flintstone feet. So there's just, just like... The whole fashion thing with this like super pointy oh, shoes that yes. whatever that was in the early 2000s or something. It's like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, forget it. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You have been delightful. Good question. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. I look forward to reading Gail's memoir when she finishes it and for pictures of her miniature horses and goats in pajamas. 
she's more than earned the opportunity to step into her new life. Good luck, Gail. Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. I'd love it if you left a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll be putting out episodes every two weeks this season while I continue to work on my first novel and try and spend some time in my garden. It's a great lineup, and I'm excited to share the next episodes with you. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to me via the podcast website, www.thearena-podcast.com. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in The Arena. The Arena.